0: This is the AK-47 podcast with Kristen Godsey. I'm going to start this episode by doing my traditional reading from a text of Alexandra Kolontai's. Actually, in this case, it's a footnote to a text of Alexandra Kolontai's. But I just want to preview ahead of time that there's going to be a special announcement, special giveaway with my daughter after this episode. So please make sure you listen until the very end. Today, I am going to do something a little strange, and I'm actually going to read the text of an extended footnote. Last week, we read a piece that Alexandra Kolontai had written in 1946, which was called The Soviet Woman, a Full and Equal Citizen of Her Country, or something like that. And it was basically Alexandra Kollontai kind of reflecting on the achievements that the Soviet Union had made for women since the revolution in 1917. So she's sort of really looking back and reflecting on a lot of her life's work. As I said, it was also in the context of the end of the Second World War when the Soviet Union had lost upwards of 25 million citizens. And so she was also really trying to admonish women to have children but not give up their careers because obviously the state needed their labor as, as well uh, in the formal economy. So they're productive as well as reproductive labor. Now, one of the things that often gets discussed in regards to women's rights in the Eastern Bloc, and I hear this all the time because of my work, uh, particularly around why women have better sex under socialism and other arguments for economic independence, but also... In regards to my more scholarly book, Second World, Second Sex, which was about the role of socialist women at the United Nations during the Cold War, and how I argue that without socialist women's activism from the Eastern Bloc, international progress on women's rights would not have gone as far as it did. And in fact, the end of the Cold War generally marked a kind of moment of regression for global attention to women's issues outside of the very narrow framework of liberal feminism that we see today the kind of girl boss feminism that we encounter on places like you know the internet or instagram or in more popular venues sort of rah-rah, kind of having more women on corporate boards and, and more women slaying the boardroom. This was a very different vision of feminism than, than, than the vision that women in the Eastern Bloc had, which was of wider social safety nets to support women with childcare and with parental leaves and with generally a more equitable society where they could combine uh, motherhood if they so choose with their productive roles, with their careers. So one of the critiques that I often hear is that Soviets, the Soviet state and East European states, in fact, only cared about women's rights because they needed women to work and have babies. And they needed them to do both at the same time. And I believe, you know, that this is not necessarily a contradiction with the actual fact that they did do a lot to support women's roles in society their motives may not have been pure. In fact, they might have been very selfish. They did not really care about women's self-actualization. What they cared about was mobilizing women into the labor force and keeping those women in the labor force while not suppressing the birth rate. Now, I think that the key thing here is the law of unintended consequences. So the fact that these societies had all of these historical texts, like Engels, like August Babel, like, in fact, the text of Alexandra Kollontai, meant that they had an ideological justification for supporting women's rights, for encouraging women to go and get education and training to pursue careers in addition to pursuing motherhood and raising their families. But the thing that's really interesting about this, I think, is that, yeah, their initial you know motivations might have been very selfish, very much about promoting the goals of developing state socialism and supporting the central planning and so on and so forth. But the truth of the matter, I think, is that women actually got empowered by these ideologies. And when the state didn't actually come through on their promises to build kindergartens or creches or public cafeterias, or if the food in the cafeterias was awful, if the clothes that they had were cheaply made or ugly, if the quality of the childcare was somehow unsatisfactory, These women could actually go and complain and point to these earlier texts of thinkers like Engels and even Lenin and Bebel and Kollontai and Zetkin and others that we've talked about and say, hey, look, women's emancipation is part and parcel of the program for socialism. And so if you're really committed to socialism, you have to support us. And there's plenty of evidence out there, and there's more evidence being found all the time that this actually worked, that in fact, a lot of women did pressure the government from the bottom, from the grassroots, to really try to help women combine their work and family responsibilities. Now, as I say, in many places, you know, the Romanians didn't do this. There were very draconian abortion laws in Romania, and the Soviet Union did not always live up to its promises. Things were definitely better in places like the GDR, which is East Germany or Czechoslovakia or Poland, than it, than they were in, in, in other countries. You know, Albania also had pretty restrictive reproductive uh, rights and so on and so forth. So this is not trying to homogenize the Eastern Bloc, but I think it's really important to recognize that because these Eastern Bloc countries rhetorically said that women's emancipation was part and parcel of the program for socialism, it meant that they kind of actually had to live up to those standards, partially because of their women, the women in their country demanding it, and also because they started speaking out about this on the international stage. And as I argue in my book, Second World, Second Sex, I think because they were talking about it at places like the United Nations, women's rights or women's issues became very much part of Cold War superpower rivalry. And the footnote that I'm going to read today is actually from a moment in the late Cold War. So the book that I read the essay from is from 1984. It was a collection of essays and and writings of Alexandra Kolontai that were translated into English And printed and published in the Soviet Union and then sent abroad. So, obviously, this is a Soviet publication. And in this publication, you know, again, there's a little introduction to Kolontai's life. There's a timeline from which I read last week. There are these essays, most of them are abridged. They have a little context about what she was writing about and why. And then there are these really interesting. Footnotes, endnotes, actually, at the end of the book, which are the opinions of the editors. These are obviously little bits of propaganda. That the Soviet government and the Soviet publishing house that published this book decided to include in the work. And it's important to remember that even though the book was in English, the target audience was not only in the United States. This would be a book that would have gone to the United Kingdom, to Canada, to Australia, to New Zealand, to South Africa, to India, anywhere in the world where English was the primary language. And so this footnote, it's footnote number, endnote number 56, is the note that is connected to the little speech or article that I read of Alexandra Kolontai's last week. And so the piece that Kolontai wrote was 1946. And so this footnote is written in 1984 by the editors of the collection. And it reads... Thirty-seven years have passed since this article was written, and during this time, the Soviet state has pursued a policy of genuine female equality and the protection of motherhood, achieving new and major successes in the socio-political development of women workers, women collective farmers, and women members of the intelligentsia. The Constitution of the USSR, adopted at an extraordinary session of the Supreme Soviet of the USSR on the 7th of October 1977 declares women and men have equal rights in the USSR. And you have to understand that obviously this is written in response to the failure of the United States to ratify the equal rights amendment which had been passed but then failed to be ratified by the deadline. So here the Soviets were obviously trying to stick it to the United States and the endnote continues. The practical implementation of these rights is ensured by according women equal opportunities with men in the spheres of education and professional training, in work, in remuneration for work, and in promotion, in socio-political and cultural activity. It is also ensured by the special measures to protect female labor and women's health, by the creation of conditions which allow women to combine work with motherhood, by legal protection and material and moral support for mother and child, including paid leave and other privileges for pregnant women and for mothers, by the gradual reduction of the working day for women with small children. The conditions obtaining under developed socialism offer women broad opportunities for participating in every sphere of creative labor, scientific creativity, culture, etc. Of all the specialists in the country working in the national economy, 59% are women, many of whom occupy managerial and executive posts. Of all those engaged in scientific work, 40% are women. The number of women in public education and the health services is particularly high. Of 893,000 doctors, 600.6 thousand are women, while two-thirds of the teaching staff in schools is made up of women. Socialism has enabled women to participate on a mass scale in social and political life and state management. Over 4 million women are members of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. In the Supreme Soviet, there are 487 women, which was almost one-third of its membership. More than 1,130,000 of the best daughters of the nation have been elected as deputies to the Supreme Soviets of the Union and autonomous republics and local Soviets. Much has also been achieved in the protection of mother and child the network of special state institutions is constantly growing. The number of hospital beds available for expectant and nursing mothers is now 224.2 thousand. And the number of women's consultation centers, children's clinics, and health centers is 529,000. Around 100,000 pediatricians keep a regular check on the health of mother and child. At present, 13 million children are looked after in over 120,000 creches and kindergartens. In urban areas, every second child up to the age of seven, and in rural areas, every fourth child attends preschool institutions. Every year, 450 to 500 rubles is spent to provide for one child at a kindergarten or creche, and 80% of this expenditure is borne by the state. So that's the end of the end note. And I do think it is probably worth accepting the fact that, yeah, sure, this is the Soviet Union and there's definitely an element here of propaganda. But what they were saying in 1984 was largely true. It doesn't say anything about the quality of those kindergartens or crushes. And it doesn't necessarily say that Soviet women were not really in the highest positions in the economy. They were in these middle managerial and executive positions, but they never really reached the very, very high levels, although there were some exceptions. But the General fact of the matter was that there was a hell of a lot more state-funded child care happening in the Soviet Union than there was anywhere in the United States, for sure, but also much of the developed West. And so from the vantage point of 1984, and I think it's interesting here that the editors of this collection of Alexandra Kollontai's writing really wanted to highlight the fact that even though Kollontai had passed away in 1952... In 1984, the Soviet Union was still very much committed to the emancipation of, of women and of really making sure that women were full participants in the Soviet economy. And, and I will argue, you know, I'm happy to argue this with lots of people that that was true in many of the other Eastern Bloc states as well, especially when you think about them in comparison to West Europe or the United States, that there was this there was this real forward momentum that the Eastern Bloc had that ultimately ends up kind of catalyzing international and global attention to women's issues as the West scrambles to catch up, because a lot of Western countries, felt like, wow, you know, they were really doing a lot for women in, in the Eastern Bloc. And a lot of American women and, and Western women were pointing to the Eastern Bloc countries and saying, hey, look, they have this parental leave policy, and they have these maternity leave policies, and they have these kindergartens and crushes, and they have all of these supports for women working, and we don't have any of them. And I do think it's, it's worth considering whether or not, it's a question, it's a counterfactual, whether or not the progress of women's rights in the United States would have gone as fast and as far as it did in the 70s and 80s if it had not been for the influence of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc more broadly speaking about women's rights on the international stage. So it turns out that January will actually be the 2 year anniversary of this podcast.
1: Wow. Hello, I'm I'm daughter again. I'm this back. is
0: daughter. My daughter is here with me and 2 years. 2 years. That's crazy. This is my 70th episode according to some I don't know exactly how it works, but <laughs> some accounting. I think it's number 70. And yeah, 2 years. So we're, my daughter has helped me design something special for listeners, and I'm going to let her describe it.
1: So we're coming up on two years of the Alexandra Kollontai podcast, and we've accrued many, many lovely listeners. But we've noticed, and well, mostly I notice because my mom does not look at these things and doesn't understand them at all. But I've noticed that there are very few reviews of our podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Podcast Addict. And that is kind of a shame because the way that the algorithm works for these kinds of things, as far as I understand it, is that uh, the more reviews, especially the more positive reviews a podcast has, that means that the more uh, it gets circulated around in recommended podcasts. And so there may be tons and tons and tons of people out there listening to podcasts who would love the Alexander Kolontai podcast and would learn a lot and, you know, would think that it's great, but they don't hear about it because we don't have much publicity outside of just the number of listeners that we have, which is kind of only visible to us because we run the, the podcast. So I've decided that I would design a few stickers that um, to promote our podcast. And the deal is that if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Podcast Addict on Android then you and you sc- send us a screenshot to podcast at gmail.com. That email will be in the show notes for this episode. You can, and your mailing address, whether that be a PO box or whatever, uh, we will send you four amazing, cool, awesome stickers that I designed myself, and they have really fun little black and white cut-out pictures of Alexandra Collintai with the slogan, keep up the good fight, around two of them, and then just her name around two of them. And she's wearing sunglasses, she's chewing bubblegum, she's got a tie-dye background in one of them. and, And she's just like such a cool, awesome, like she's just that bitch, you know? And she is so cool. And so if you want to have awesome swag from our lovely podcast, and you can show it to all your friends and say, I'm so cool, I listen to this awesome podcast that you should listen to as well. And you can give these stickers to your friends or you can put them on your laptop or on your water bottle or, you know, whatever you decide to do. We ordered them from this lovely website that makes actually really good quality stuff. They're super sticky and they're nice and matte. They're not like, you know, crappy like paper stickers that are going to fall off in a few days. And once again, the email to send your review, the screenshot of your review to is alexandra.colontai.podcast at gmail.com. And also... On the blog, there's a link in the show notes that links to my mom's blog post where she has a picture of the designs. So if you want to check out the designs before you do this, um, you can do that there. And also, for those of you international listeners who are wondering if this is available to you, yes it is. We will ship out to anywhere in the world um, as long as you give us an address to ship to you. <laughs> and... So that's lovely. That's great. And I get to do the sign off today. So thank you for listening and keep up the good fight.